Mitt Romney's a good man. He cares about 100% of Americans in this country. And with respect to that quote, I think the vice president very well knows that sometimes the words don't come out of your mouth the right way. (laughs) (laughs) But I always say what I mean. Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what do we have up for today? So this week we're continuing our series on historical speeches and events, this time with the 2012 vice presidential debate between Joe Biden and Paul Ryan. Now, you may remember this debate was pivotal in President Obama's re-election because it followed a particularly poor performance in the presidential debate a week earlier between Obama and Mitt Romney. So listen closely to the segments we point out here and you'll see why Biden was universally regarded as the winner of this debate and in fact very dominant within it with a powerful and persuasive performance. Let's take a listen to this first clip. Let's move to Iran. I'd I'd actually like to move to Iran because there's really no bigger national security this country is facing. Both President Obama and Governor Romney have said they will prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, even if that means military action. Last week, former Defense Secretary Bob Gates said a strike on Iran's facilities would not work and, quote, could prove catastrophic, haunting us for generations. Can the two of you be absolutely clear and specific to the American people? How effective would a military strike be, Congressman Ryan? We cannot allow Iran to gain a nuclear weapons capability. Now, let's take a look at where we've come from. When Barack Obama was elected, they had enough fissile material, nuclear material to make one bomb. Now they have enough for five. They're racing toward a nuclear weapon. They're four years closer toward a nuclear weapons capability. We've had four different sanctions to the UN on Iran, three from the Bush administration, one here. And the only reason we got it is because Russia watered it down and prevented the the sanctions from hitting the central bank. Mitt Romney proposed these sanctions in 2007. In Congress, I've been fighting for these sanctions since 2009. The administration was blocking us every step of the way. Only because we had strong bipartisan support for these tough sanctions were we able to overrule their objections and put them in spite of the administration. Imagine what would have happened if we had these sanctions in place earlier. You think Iran's not brazen? Look at what they're doing. They're stepping up their terrorist attacks. They tried a terrorist attack in the United States last year when they tried to blow up the Saudi ambassador at a restaurant in Washington, D.C. And talk about credibility. When this administration says that all options are on the table, they send out senior administration officials that send all these mixed signals. And so in order to solve this peacefully, which is everybody's goal, you have to have the Ayatollahs change their minds. Look at where they are. 
They're moving faster toward a nuclear weapon. It's because this administration has no credibility on this issue. It's because this administration watered down sanctions, delayed sanctions, tried to stop us from putting the tough sanctions in place. Now we have them in place because of Congress. They say the military option's on the table, but it's not being viewed as credible. And the key is to do this peacefully is to make sure that we have credibility. Under a Romney administration, we will have credibility on this issue. Vice President Biden. Incredible. <laughs> uh, look, um, imagine had we let the Republican Congress work out the sanctions. You think there's any possibility the entire world would have joined us? Russia and China, all of our allies. These are the most crippling sanctions in the history of sanctions, period, period. When Governor Romney's asked about it, he said, we got to keep these sanctions. When you say, well, you're talking about doing more, what are you, are you, you're going to go to war? Is that what you want to do now? We want to prevent war. We're gonna, and I, the interesting thing is how they're going to prevent war. How are they going to prevent war? They say there, there's nothing more that, we, that they say we should do than what we've already done, number one. And number two, with regard to the ability of the United States to take action militarily, it is, it is not in my purview to talk about classified information, but we feel quite confident we could deal a serious blow to the Iranians. But number two, the Iranians are, the Israelis and the United States, our military and intelligence communities are absolutely the same exact place in terms of how close, how close the Iranians are to getting a nuclear weapon. They are a good way away. There is no difference between our view and theirs. When my friend talks about fissile material, they have to take this highly enriched uranium, get it from 20% up, then they have to be able to have something to put it in. There is no weapon that the Iranians have at this point. Both the Israelis and we know, we'll know if they start the process of building a weapon. So all this bluster I keep hearing, all this loose talk, what are they talking about? Are you talking about to be more credible? What more can the president do? Stand before the United Nations, tell the whole world, directly communicate to the Ayatollah, we will not let them acquire a nuclear weapon, period, unless he's talking about going to war. Now, before we get into breaking down this first part of the speech, since we know that this type of commentary is what you love, where we're breaking down political persuasion in depth, I would like you to consider supporting our mission here. Time is running out to support the show this month, which means it's now time to chip in. Your support really matters. Each month, we have server costs as well as the time spent developing this show. And to safeguard our independence, we never run ads. Our podcast is available to everyone and funded by listeners. If you appreciate our efforts and you want to show that appreciation, go ahead and chip in to keep this show running. It just takes a minute to keep this show on the air, ad-free and growing. So you can find the link in our show notes as well as going to our website at subliminallycorrect.com and clicking the Support Us tab in the top right. All right, so now let's talk about this clip here where we're really starting off this debate. And it, actually, this is one of, this is about 10 minutes into the debate where they're starting to talk about Iran. And we hear the question that's being asked by the moderator, which is, how effective would a military strike be? And then we hear Paul Ryan just completely ignoring the question and just going right into what people want to hear. And he says, we cannot allow Iran to gain a nuclear weapons capability. That's the first 
phrase out of his mouth. So he's not even going to attempt to answer the question. And then he really, as he says this for weight and impact, he knows that those sound bites are all that people is going to remember. And so he's really emphasizing that point right there. And then he starts to talk about credibility, about how the um, current administration has no credibility on these matters, how the Ayatollah is believing this about the administration and how they need to show strength and how somehow his administration is going to have credibility. He doesn't tell us how, but somehow he is going to have credibility. And the other thing that we notice here is some of Biden's rehearsed debate tactics. So the first thing in which you become aware of is how he calls uh, Ryan here, my friend. It's kind of like a little bit of a godfather throwback. My friend here, you know, does this, my friend that. And he keeps saying that, you know, you got to wonder how that would play today. Um, I don't think that he's going to be, you know, calling Trump his friend. But, you know, he keeps saying that throughout this entire debate. And then you also hear this classic idea that um, Biden keeps doing where he'll he'll talk for a while about some point, And when he feels like he's made a good case, he'll then say number one and then he'll say and number two. And then he'll start to talk about something else. And then he'll say number two. And then he'll continue to say number one, this number two, this number. You know, he, he rarely actually gets to gets to three or, you know, beyond three. Um, but he just keeps emphasizing those numbers because he kn- he knows that in people's mind, it's like, oh, Biden made this many points um, in contrast to what the other person made. And this is actually something that he continues to use today. And then as we hear at the end there, he really slows down his cadence and has this really pregnant pause. He says, we will not let them acquire a nuclear weapon, period. And that's another thing that he does. He just keeps saying that period after he really slows down his style of speaking as a way of really emphasizing kind of like the end. Anything else you hear after this is not of substance. I've just made the entire point for you right there. Yeah. What I love here is the way that Biden is able to really, you know, uh, make Paul Ryan seem small and and sort of uh, uncredible, and it starts off with you know right when Ryan finishes, what's Biden doing? He's laughing at Ryan. He's he's saying it's incredible, haha, <laughs> and uh, he's sort of embodying this incredulous reaction as if the question being asked and the response from Ryan are jokes. And by doing this, he really invites the listener to imagine it as a joke as well, making him and his administration seem like, you know, the mature grown-ups, and these kids come up with their ideas that are so silly. You know, and he says, you know, imagine if we let the Republican Congress work out the sanctions, as if it's like the punchline of a stand-up comedian. You know, he continues by inviting that listener to imagine this situation. But what does he do? He colors in that entire scenario um, with all of his facts and, and sort of frames it negatively. And then he says this phrase, these are the most crippling sanctions in the history of sanctions, period, period. And he just loves to say that, period, <laughs> yeah. to just mark out that language there and reinforce the solidity of the points. You know, he didn't really say anything right there other than that these are really big sanctions. But, you know, he sort of 
pretended to frame it in a historical context and then added this period periodness to it um sort of contrasting his strong points and strong plan with the joke of a plan that ryan and the republicans are proposing and then even more to add to this he sort of builds this uh this incredulous response you know what are you you gonna go to war prevent war how are you gonna prevent war um and so this is biden doing what he frequently does even today where he uses rhetorical questions to place a burden on the questioner or the opponent or the listener themselves to to sort of dig within themselves and try to answer this rhetorical question. But of course, you know, whether or not they're able to come to an answer inside themselves, he asked that question, you might start to think about the answer, but bam, he's got the answer right there. And of course, his ideas are all great compared to this joke of an answer from Paul Ryan. And that's what we sort of see Biden do here. And in these next couple of clips here, we're going to be listening to um, Joe Biden and Paul Ryan spar off a little bit on the issue of the economy and of jobs. And so first, we're going to be listening to Biden here um, talking about jobs, and he's going to be breaking down what has happened with the uh, first term of the Obama administration with regard to the economy and jobs. And he's going to be kind of doing it play by play to then take all of these things that are true and then lead us somewhere else. So let's take a listen to this clip. Gentlemen, I want to bring the conversation to a different kind of national security issue, the state of our economy. The number one issue here at home is jobs. The percentage of unemployed just fell below 8% for the first time in 43 months. The Obama administration had projected that it would fall below 6% now after the addition of close to a trillion dollars in stimulus money. So will both of you level with the American people? Can you get unemployment to under 6% and how long will it take? I don't know how long it will take. We can and we will get it under 6%. Let's let's take a look at the facts. Let's look at uh, where we were when we came to office. The economy was in free fall. We had... The Great Recession hit. Nine million people lost their job. $1.6 trillion in wealth lost in equity in your homes and retirement accounts for the middle class. We knew we had to act for the middle class. We immediately went out and rescued General Motors. We went ahead and made sure that we cut taxes for the middle class. And in addition to that, when that, ha- and when that occurred, what did Romney do? Romney said, no, let Detroit go bankrupt. We moved in and helped people refinance their homes. Governor Romney said, no, let foreclosures hit the bottom. But it shouldn't be surprising for a guy who says 47% of the American people are unwilling to take responsibility for their own lives. My friend recently in a speech in Washington said 30% of the American people are takers. These people are my mom and dad, the people I grew up with, my neighbors. They pay more effective tax than Governor Romney pays in his federal income tax. They are elderly people who, in fact, are living off of Social Security. There are veterans and people fighting in Afghanistan right now who are, quote, not paying any taxes. I've had it up to here with this notion that 47%, it's about time they take some responsibility here. And instead of signing pledges to Grover Norquist not to ask the wealthiest among us to contribute to bring back the middle class, 
They should be signing a pledge saying to the middle class, we're going to level the playing field. We're going to give you a fair shot again. We are going to not repeat the mistakes we made in the past by having a different set of rules for Wall Street and Main Street, making sure that we continue to hemorrhage these tax cuts for the super wealthy. They're pushing the continuation of a tax cut that will give an additional $500 billion in tax cuts to 120,000 families. And they're holding hostage the middle class tax cut because they say we won't pass, we won't continue the middle class tax cut unless you give the tax cut for the super wealthy. It's about time they take some responsibility. And so here we have Joe Biden in his fiery performance. What I really loved about this, and you know, I was on the Obama campaign during that time. One of the big thematic uh, message points that the campaign did was to focus people's attention, not necessarily on where we are right now, because the economy was still sort of struggling and getting back on its feet at that point, but to take people's perspective back to where it all began when President Bush left the economy in shambles after the Great Recession and Obama came in with a giant mess on his hands and had to rebuild and repair the entire economy. And so this is what Joe Biden did. This is what was in the ads. This was, this was the set of phone calls people were, were receiving every single day. This is uh, what Biden and Obama were coached to say in their debates as well. Take everybody back. This is what happened back in 2008. This is what happened as everything was crashing. Here's what's happening as we started to recover. All of this happened and all of these statistics, and this is where we're going. And and Romney said this. And, you know, he sort of does it in this play-by-play here, almost like a like a sports commentator or a you know, a really a rapid fire a historian who's able to walk the listener through a set of context for the current situation that is a lot more forgiving to the Obama administration and is able to reframe the entire discussion around that new perspective of things used to be worse. So they're not so bad now and they're just going to keep on getting better. Yeah, here we we really get that whole he goes to the play by play. He starts by enumerating what happened. Um, This is what Romney said. This is what we said. You know, Romney said, um, you know, let Detroit go bankrupt. Um, Romney said, let foreclosures hit the bottom. And, you know, in the uh, context of this was Romney's comments on the idea that 47% of people pay no income tax. And this was really, really damaging to the to the Romney campaign. Let's take a listen to that clip right here so that you can get an idea of the context of that. There are 47% of the people who vote for the president no matter what. All right, there are 47% who are with him, who are dependent upon government, who believe that, that they are victims, who believe that government has a responsibility to care for them, who believe that they are entitled to health care, to food, to housing, to you name it. But that's, that's an entitlement, and government should give it to them. And they will vote for this president no matter what. And, and I mean, the president starts off with 48, 49, 48. He starts off with a huge number. These are people who pay no income tax. 47% of Americans pay no income tax. So our message of low taxes doesn't connect. The 
he'll be out there talking about tax cuts for the rich. I mean, that's what they sell every every four years. And uh, and so my job is not to worry about those people. I'll never convince them that they should take personal responsibility and care for their lives. What I have to do is convince the five to ten percent in the center that are independent, that are thoughtful, that look at voting one way or the other, dependent upon, in some cases, emotion, whether they like the guy or not. All right, so there we hear Romney's comments, and of course, Biden knew that he needed to respond to this, and he just had this really well-worded reply here. He said, you know, these people are my mom and dad, the people I grew up with, my neighbors. They pay more effective tax than Governor Romney pays in his federal income tax. He talks about veterans and elderly people and people fighting in Afghanistan. And then he has this great thing at the end there where he says... It's about time they take some responsibility. And if you heard there in the Romney clip that, you know, Romney was talking about that personal responsibility and what Biden has just done here is a context reframe. So he's taken the same phrase, but he has changed what it means. He's put it in a different frame or a different context to actually see it in a little bit of a different light so that everyone who hears the phrase personal responsibility Now it means what Biden wants it to mean. It means more of that message of decency. It means more of that message of his mom, his dad. He brings it down to that personal level, you know, where it's really hard to argue with anything at that level. So now in this next clip, you're going to hear a little bit more of that personal level. Uh, But this time it's going to be coming from Paul Ryan. And we're going to hear a little bit about why he knows what's right for America because he's from a working-class town just like Joe. Mr. Ryan. Joe and I are from similar towns. He's from Scranton, Pennsylvania. I'm from Janesville, Wisconsin. You know what the unemployment rate in Scranton is today? I sure do. It's 10%. Yeah. You know what it was the day you guys came in? 8.5%. Yeah. That's how it's going all around America. Look. You don't read the statistics. That's not how it's going. It's going down. This is his two-minute answer, please. Look. Did they come in and inherit a tough situation? Absolutely. (laughs) But we're going in the wrong direction. Look at where we are. The economy is barely limping along. It's growing at 1.3%. That's slower than it grew last year, and last year was slower than the year before. Job growth in September was slower than it was in August, and August was slower than it was in July. We're heading in the wrong direction. 23 million Americans are struggling for work today. 15% of Americans are living in poverty today. This is not what a real recovery looks like. We need real reforms for a real recovery, and that's exactly what Mitt Romney and I are proposing. It's a five-point plan. Get America energy independent in North America by the end of the decade. Help people who are hurting get the skills they need to get the jobs they want. Get this deficit and debt under control to prevent a debt crisis. Make trade work for America so we can make more things in America and sell them overseas and champion small businesses. Don't raise taxes on small businesses because there are job creators. He talks about Detroit. Mitt Romney's a car guy. They keep misquoting him, but let me tell you about the Mitt Romney I know. This is a guy who I was talking to, a family in Northborough, Massachusetts the other day, Cheryl and Mark Nixon. Their kids were hit in a car crash, four of them. Two of them, Rob and Reed, were paralyzed. The Romneys didn't know them. They went to the same church they never met before. Mitt asked if he could come over on Christmas. He brought his boys, his wife, and gifts. Later on, he said, I know you're struggling, Mark. 
Don't worry about their college, I'll pay for it. When Mark told me this story, because you know what? Mitt Romney doesn't tell these stories. The Nixons told this story. When he told me this story, he said it wasn't the help, the cash help, it's that he gave his time, and he has consistently. This is a man who gave 30% of his income to charity, more than the two of us combined. Mitt Romney's a good man. He cares about 100% of Americans in this country. And with respect to that quote, I think the vice president very well knows that sometimes the words don't come out of your mouth the right way. <laughs> but I always say what I mean. <laughs> and we so does Romney. We want everybody to succeed. We want to get people out of poverty, in the middle class, onto a life of self-sufficiency. We believe in opportunity and upward mobility. That's what we're going to push for in a Romney administration. So here, I want you to pay close attention to something that Ryan does. Ryan talks about job growth slowing in the context that we're going the wrong direction. Well, if job growth is lower than it was last month or last quarter, it's still growing. It's just growing slower. So it's he makes this as sort of a complex equivalency where just because growth is slowing, it's almost as if we're losing more jobs and we're going in the wrong direction, as he says. No, we're still going in the right direction. We're just going a little slower in the right direction. And, and so he sort of uses this confusion tactic here to get people on his side that maybe we're on the wrong path, we're going the wrong way, when in reality, Joe Biden and the administration are headed in the right direction here. Um, and so it's sort of uh, funny how he's able to mix up the words like that. And then at the end here, we <laughs> we have now Ryan's chance to uh, spin uh, Mitt Romney's words here. Uh, surely this was a canned line that he had ready to go um, because he knew that Joe Biden or perhaps the moderator were going to bring up Mitt Romney's talks about, you know, the 40 percent of Americans um, taking, uh, paying no taxes. And, you know, what we've got here is his way of disarming it, turning it into a joke, and then a joke that Biden is forced to laugh at that really sort of mocks him and his verbal st uh, stumbles and his problems with uh, staying on message. And so it serves multiple purposes there. One, it inoculates the listener to Mitt Romney's statements. It, you know, endears the listener to Paul Ryan because now he's a funny guy. And then it sort of reminds the listener that Joe Biden is, you know, fumbling and stumbling and says the wrong things a lot. And now Joe Biden is forced to acknowledge that as well and laugh along. So it's sort of like, you know, insulting somebody with a smile. Uh, and it's a great way for, for Ryan to really, you know, disarm the audience and, and get some jabs in. Yeah, I love what he does here to set up this this thing, because, you know, he's responding here to Biden's, you know, very well prepared critique of this 47 percent comment. And then Ryan goes right into this rapport building thing. You know, Joe and I are from some similar towns. He's from Pennsylvania. I'm from Wisconsin. Now, what does he mean by similar? They have about the same population. Um, but then again, they're on the other side of the country. And, you know, but we could say there are some similarities there. But what that's doing is it's building rapport. It's building community. 
And so he's establishing rapport, but then he goes right into this, um, this, this really one-two punch, this logic box that Biden can't help but escape because it's so well done. Do you know what the unemployment rate in Scranton is right now? It's like, what is Biden supposed to say, you know, to that? You know, is he supposed to say, I don't know what it, he doesn't know what it is for his hometown? He can't say that. And so Biden says, sure do. And, you know, and then, you know, uh, Ryan says 10%, you know, do you know what it was when you guys came in, you know, seven point whatever, you know, and you know, that's how it's going right now all around America. And so this is a nice pace and lead construction right here where he builds that trap for Biden to fall into. So lawyers do this during cross-examination. So what happens is you take a bunch, you know, car salesmen do it too. You take a bunch of facts that are true or that you can establish as being true. And then as those facts are established, the person is working themselves more and more into a position that they're unable to get away from because they already agreed with those facts. And so when someone says, okay, you know, is that true? Do you know what it is? So we've agreed that it's 10%. We've agreed that it was, you know, seven and something. We've agreed that there was this change. And now I'm going to tell you what it means. That's what Ryan does here. So it's really hard for Biden to back out of that because he's already agreed with what it is. Now, of course, Biden immediately objects and the moderator kind of butts in and says, you know, give him the time. But of course, he can't not say anything because Ryan has been engaging him, you know, within that. And he's basically building, you know, his case for him. And then Ryan does it again. He says, you know, did they come into a tough situation? Sure, they did. It's like, okay, he's acknowledging he's being human. Back to the rapport rapport building. He's acknowledging Joe Biden and Barack Obama as being, you know, these people who have helped in some way, perhaps. But then he immediately goes on the attack. Look at where we are now. The economy is barely limping along. It's another pace and lead. And then he really, you know, caps it off here at the end with this great story about Christmas. You know, Mitt Romney, you know, I was talking with someone and here's, let me tell you, you know, they a lot of times keep misquoting him, but let me tell you about the Mitt Romney I know. (laughs) And it's like, okay, this is a great, you know, setup. Um, And then he goes on to do what in hypnosis is called extended quotes. So we've heard Donald Trump do that. You know, I was talking to this guy at the rally one time and what this guy said to me was, and they said this and they said that. Of course, can we check any of the references? No, you know, but because it's this story, it's like, oh, yeah, this person must exist. And Ryan makes that even more credible by giving you the names of the people. You know, Romney didn't know them, but they did go to the same church. So it's kind of like, okay, you know, Romney's this church going guy. And he went over there on Christmas. I mean, yeah, like as if Romney didn't know what he was doing. And then how Ryan ends this here is by stacking what that campaign believes in. We believe in this. We believe in that. We believe in this other thing. And that's what we're going to push for in a Romney administration. All right, I think that's all the time we've got for today. Head on over to subliminallycorrect.com. You can uh, find the link in our show notes. 
head to the top right corner to the support us tab where you can see our Patreon, go ahead and donate whatever it is that you think will contribute most to supporting the show and keeping us on the air. Uh, you can contribute as little as $5 just to get us a cup of coffee. And if you love the show and you want other people to find the show, head on over to your podcast app, especially the iTunes app, and rate us five stars. It really does help people find the show. And don't forget, follow us on Twitter at SubliminalPod and on Facebook. You can submit your questions, ideas, thoughts, questions, concerns, whatever it might be. And we might even read them here live on the show. So we will see you with the second half of this debate next week. <laughs>